You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Today's guest is Leslie Kamenoff, whose book, Yoga Anatomy, is a staple in yoga teacher trainings around the world. These days there are other options, but back when I was going through training, it was the only anatomy book that specifically spoke to yoga. Many of us are familiar with Leslie for that reason, but you might not know that Leslie was also a player in the formation of the Yoga Alliance, which you'll hear about in the conversation. He is known as a person who speaks his mind and does not mind ruffling feathers, so that makes for a fun conversation. (laughs) When I reached out to him about coming onto the podcast, he suggested this topic, and that was not what I was expecting to talk about, but I was really excited that he had suggested it, because Leslie is in the unique position of having been an advisor to the Yoga Alliance, both when it first formed and again today, as they're poised to update their standards. Before we jump into the conversation, I want to make a brief note about the sound. Leslie sounds fantastic, but when I started editing, I was bummed to hear that it sounds like my mic was off and I recorded through my computer. I thought I had double-checked that before our call, but I cannot think of another reason for my sound quality to be so off. In case this is your first episode and you think my voice is kind of annoying, please know that this is not the usual sound quality. I hope that before deciding whether or not my voice is something that you can listen to on a regular basis, that you'll listen to a couple more episodes where the sound quality is better. With that said, I do think the contents of the conversation are absolutely worth your time. And I'm also excited to continue this conversation about the Yoga Alliance and about yoga teacher training standards on the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group. If you're not yet a member and you want to join, you can go to teachingyoga.net slash join. All right, let's get started with Leslie Kamenoff, and I'll see you on the other side. Tell us a little bit about the history, because as I attended the Yoga Alliance listening tour, and I heard their version of the history of the Yoga Alliance, and then I reached out to other people who've been around a little bit longer than I have. I've been teaching for 15 years. I heard some conflicting stories, and I'm curious about your perspective on the past. Yeah, sure. Um, And I'm happy to share that because I I was at one of those listening events here in New York, and um, I heard David Lipsius give his version of the history of the Alliance and his take on unity and yoga and what we were doing. Um, and um, I didn't quibble with some of the, the, the facts that I didn't consider to be that, you know, critical that he got wrong um, because he was going after the spirit of something. And, and I understood that to be the case. Um, I also had a chance to listen to Rama Jyoti Vernon recently on my friend Jay Brown's podcast who's the founder of Unity in Yoga, among other things, including uh, California Yoga Teachers Association, which of course was the original publisher of Yoga Journal and all of that. And you know, she's far senior than I am in this whole sort of yoga organizing world. 
So, um, yeah, I'd be happy just to give a, a little uh, overview of my personal uh, involvement. Uh, by the way, if you hear noise in the background, like construction noise, they are disassembling a building here on Broadway in New York uh, between 93rd and 94th. Um, and then they're going to be building a much taller one, which will block out some of the sunlight we get in this apartment. So if you hear banging or whatever. I heard that and I, I figured, oh man, there's probably nothing he can do about that. That's got to be New York construction. The, the, that's actually deconstruction. But yes, the window, the window is closed and that's what's still coming in. So I apologize, but that's, this is New York. Um, well, I can hear you fine. Oh, that's good. Okay, so I first uh, made some contact with the Yoga Alliance, sorry, with uh, Unity in Yoga, um, back in uh, 1987. Um, and my main motivation to be at the Unity in Yoga conference was to meet Gary Kratzow, because I had heard about him through an article that had appeared in Yoga Journal, uh, in which David Frawley interviewed him basically um, for this article. And uh, the the teachings that he was talking about were very close to where I had brought myself in my own inquiry at that point, having been teaching yoga at that point for uh, about eight years, I guess, because um, I was originally trained uh, in 1979 as a yoga teacher. Um, and so, I showed up there and I took all of Gary's uh, workshops and started pestering him with questions. And, um, and that is how I originally connected with Desika Char the next year in 1988. But um, the event itself impressed me because at that time, nobody else was doing yoga conferences, uh, let alone big international ones. Um, and that was Unity in Yoga. And Rama was there, Rama Jyoti Vernon. And she got to speak about um, her vision and her mission uh, for unity in yoga and some of the things that she said um, struck me and it's funny I was just talking with Jay Brown the other day um, about his conversation with Rama because he knows that she and I have a history and um, he had the same feeling having had the conversation with Rama that I had way back then it's like she makes she she's doing important work but she makes you feel important for being connected and interested to the work she's doing Right, and it's a very motivating way to get people involved in things. Um, it's it's sort of how missions get started, um, and I wanted to be part of it. And she said something like, "If yoga teachers can't get along with each other, who on this planet can? Right? If we can't set an example for finding some common ground between us, and by us she meant people from all different." schools of yoga, whether it was Kundalini yoga or, or Hatha yoga or the Iyengar people or whatever was, was present at the time. All of us did come together for these conferences. And so I got involved uh, rather quickly. And um, I already had a pension for organizing things. I, I had been involved in production of events, uh, you know, since my, my high school days. Uh, whether it was a theatrical production or a yoga festival with the Shivananda group, you know, that I used to work for. So I fit in very well with this whole mission that Unity and Yoga had to bring teachers together from all different traditions into these, what at that point was becoming yearly conferences. Um, so this is, uh, you know, mid-late 80s. 
Uh, we keep doing conferences together uh, up until the last one I worked on, which was in uh, 93, which was the 100th anniversary of yoga in America, uh, dated from 1883, um, sorry, 1893, when um, Swami Vivekananda presented Vedanta at the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago. So during that time, what was starting to happen was this real surge in popularity in yoga practice. And, and part of it really was, well, a major part of it was the introduction of the Ashtanga Vinyasa style of teaching, which was much more athletic, more strenuous, uh, you'd, you'd sweat, uh, and the, the fitness industry, which was barely an industry for 10 years at that point, um, wanted yoga in the gyms. So there was a situation, and no one was starting to attach the word industry to yoga at that point. That had not really started. The word industry had barely been attached to fitness for 10 years, but that fitness industry wanted us, meaning yoga teachers. But the demand at that point far ex exceeded the supply of teachers, particularly teachers uh, who were well-versed in how to lead one of these more energetic vinyasa style uh, practices. It may seem weird today to say that, <laughs> you know, when, when now we're dealing with a glut of teachers in just about every field. But back then, it was kind of an issue. And um, what started to happen was certain people started noticing that this was a business opportunity. Um, whenever the demand for something exceeds the supply, someone's going to jump in and start supplying that thing, right? And so who jumped in at that point was Beth Shaw. Um, Beth Shaw is the founder of YogaFit. YogaFit got started by meeting that uh, demand and supplying teachers. And she had a brilliant idea, brilliant business idea. And that was, she went to the sort of group fitness directors of the gyms and said, look, you've already got people on your payroll teaching in your clubs who know how to lead group fitness. They're called aerobics teachers. Give them to me for a weekend and I'll teach them how to teach one of these yoga classes, right? So by Monday morning, after a weekend of training with me, your aerobics teachers are now also yoga teachers. And it was a brilliant move from a business standpoint. And, you know, the, the gyms got yoga and the, the instructors got extra training and extra classes to teach. And everything was good except for folks like, you know, the teachers who had been doing this for decades had dedicated their lives to it getting together at Unity and Yoga Conferences saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe we don't know right off the bat how much training it takes to produce a reasonably qualified yoga teacher, but we're pretty damn sure a weekend isn't enough. And that's how the dialogue got started. It started happening at Unity and Yoga Conferences. Um, it started happening back and forth at that time, email was like a new thing, right? And so it was very exciting to be able to have these conversations, you know, in other than, you know, live situations. And it, it culminated after several meetings um, with the, what is now referred to as the ad hoc committee 
Uh, and the final meeting of the ad hoc committee, which at that point I was part of, happened at Kripalu. Uh, the year would have been 1986 or 87, I believe. Sorry, 96 or 97. I get my decades mixed up. I've been doing this so, so long. It would have been 96 or 97. Um, and we came up with the 200 and the 500 hour standards and the breakdown of the hours with each topic. Uh, and at that point, Unity and Yoga as an organization had gone dormant because the last conference that Unity and Yoga produced was the one after the 93 one I mentioned. In 1994, there's one in Colorado. I wasn't involved in that one. I already resigned from Unity and Yoga. And the very next year, 95, was the first conference that Yoga Journal produced, which was also in Colorado. And there were discussions happening there at that conference about some senior teachers getting together and coming up with standards. And that culminated in the ad hoc committee, which culminated in the 200 and 500 hour standards. So uh, I had a personal involvement in Unity Yoga as a vice president and uh, in the ad hoc committee when the hours were settled upon. With the distance of time, looking back, what do you think now about the standards that you guys created? And do you wish you'd done anything differently? <laughs> well, I don't personally wish I had done anything differently. I wish that certain other people had done things differently because I, I was a critic right from the beginning of where things started uh, going. Um, so to answer the first part of the, the question, um, the I should mention there, there, were, there were other forces getting people together other than, um, you know, we've got we've to do something about these weekend trainings, right? Uh, for example, um, yoga was starting to be taught more in uh, therapeutic environments as well. A good example of that was the Ornish program, you know. Um, and a major part of the Ornish program for... Uh, preventing and uh, recovering from heart disease was yoga, stress reduction, meditation, as well as diet and lifestyle changes, uh, and just exercise in general. Um, and uh, two key people who were deeply involved in Unity and Yoga were also deeply involved in developing the yoga component of the Ornish program, and that would have been um, uh, Nishala Devi and um, Yanni Chapman, who's no longer with us. Um, and they were traveling around with Ornish, putting these programs into various hospital situations around the country. Now, they ran into an issue where um, the local hospital administrators needed to find local yoga teachers who would be qualified to come in and learn how to teach the yoga component of the Ornish program. And so Yanni uh, and, and Nishala were in a difficult situation where it's like, well, you know, what do you do? Look in the yellow pages? I mean... Um, how, how do we determine, you know, the qualifications of these, of these people? Now, you know, the answer is then is the same as it is now. You have to get to know them. You know, even if you have a piece of paper or initials after your name that says you did this or that. Uh, and there were organizations training teachers then that gave them pieces of paper even back then. I got one from Shivananda, you know, nice certificate. It doesn't mean they're qualified. You have to have a relationship. There has to be a connection. And sometimes a piece of paper um, actually gets in the way 
of recognizing the necessity of having that connection, which is something I was pointing out way back when. But, um, but we did have, I remember on speakerphone, we had Nishchala and Yanni both calling into this ad hoc committee meeting we were having, talking about their experiences of, look, we're in, a, we're in environments where credentials mean something to these people. And if we don't come up with standards for ourselves as a community, I don't think the word industry is being used, someone else is going to come up with them for us on our behalf, right? So there was a little bit of a, a fear of outside interference going on that was motivating those of us in the yoga teaching community to have these conversations so that we can come up with our own standards instead of the idea of some governmental or quasi-governmental um, you know, uh, organization coming up with an, on our behalf. So the, number, the, the numbers we came up with, the 200 and 500, I can tell you exactly how that happened. Uh, and I don't think it was so much what Rama said in Jay's podcast about the Iyengar people already had a 200-hour thing. I don't recall that being part of our conversation, at least in that room, maybe prior to that, because there were conversations before I got involved. So maybe, yes. But on that day, or those days in that room, not so much. But the watchword was ahimsa. It was, what's the minimum amount of training? What's the minimum standard we can think of for educating a teacher so they can get in front of a room and have the resources they need to lead people through an hour, hour and a half class, whatever, without hurting them, you know? How much anatomy, how much philosophy, how much practicum, how much whatever. Um, and so ahimsa was a strong watchword there uh, with, the, with the 200. But it was always intended to be a minimum, you know, a starting place. What in, and, and you, from the benefit of hindsight now, you asked that as part of your question, looking back, what we see we were really doing was handing people a recipe which would, in some cases, turn into a race to the bottom, where people who would never have thought of or could have thought of what it would take to produce a teacher's training were now being handed a cookbook for it, right? Yeah. And a big unanswered question, which I brought up in that meeting, which never got adequately answered, was, okay, great, we can congratulate ourselves for coming up with this 200 and 500-hour standard, and what programs or teachers would need to do to meet the standard in terms of number of hours and the topics or whatever. What we have not talked about is how do you determine who's qualified to teach in those programs? Right, right? yeah. Because you know, it's sort of like, well, present company excluded, we're gonna assume we're all you know, adequately experienced and trained to do this. We're not gonna ask each other for our credentials as to why we're even in this room, because we kind of all knew who we were. But, you know, extending the conversation beyond that room is like, you know, so that turned into like a grandfathering thing and all of that. But that was never as um, cut and dried in terms of how many hours of teaching experience and studying and practice or whatever, even if hours means anything in that regard, would a, a teacher trainer have to have. So, you know, that was, that was not dealt with in a, a very transparent way right from the beginning. Yeah. 
I want to um, turn back to something you said a little bit earlier about certification doesn't mean qualification. Sure. And or can get in the way of determining someone's qualifications. Perhaps. And there's an interaction here with capitalism and yoga as an industry where if the primary income for a yoga teacher or a yoga studio is teacher trainings, then there is no motivation, there's no forces driving towards standards for their graduates. So what I've noticed is that most teacher trainings graduate everybody who starts the training and shows up to the classes, whether they complete the homework or not. Um, some of them might require the homework to be completed, but most of them don't require testing or, you know, if their final practicum is really, you know, not well executed. I've mm -hmm. never heard, and, and perhaps, of course, there probably are a few. Never heard of people flunking out of their TTC? No. Have you? <laughs> okay, well, first of all, let's put it in context. How many people that actually go through a teacher's training are there for the specific purpose of becoming a professional yoga teacher? for one thing. Professional meaning somebody who intends to pursue it as, if not a primary career, at least a serious pursuit where they have the teaching chops that um, enables them to establish themselves in a marketplace, to use the language of, of uh, business, right? Yeah, I'm gonna say 10 to 20% would be my projection as far as you know, people who go in from the beginning feeling that way. Okay, so is it more or less than 10 to 20% of students who graduate from these programs who may not be adequately qualified to do that, you see? So you have to weigh the, um, the values here uh, that are actually involved in these situations. And, and the thing I've been saying almost from the beginning is that the conversation got a little bit off the rails right in the beginning when we failed, and this can go to how the Alliance is presently gonna reevaluate issues exactly like this, how from the beginning we, we failed to distinguish between a teacher and an instructor. Mm -hmm. okay. After 200 hours, I think the best you can say about a graduate of a program like that is that they have been given the, the, the resources to become an instructor which in, in my view is very different from a teacher. An instructor plus experience and more training will eventually equal a teacher. Um, but at 200 hours, basically you're being taught to teach a class, you know? Um, and you'll, in the beginning, you're gonna suck, you know, as an instructor. And you learn how not to suck by teaching. Right? You learn to teach by teaching. You don't learn to teach by taking an instructor training. You learn to enough so that you have a starting point for that process. And, I, I bel uh, and, and that would have that one change in not just language, not just semantic thing, in the, the giving the, the people who are running these trainings and the ones who are enrolled and graduating from them a set of reasonable expectations as to what they are and are not at the end of one of these trainings would have gone a long way toward, toward um, uh, undercutting 
I'd say 90% of the criticism that the Alliance was subjected to, which consisted of some variation of 200 hours is not enough. And you know what? They're right. Everyone who has said that is right. Enough to create a teacher. It could be enough to create an instructor. Looking back, even in hindsight, you can see that the problem they were trying to solve then is very different from the problem we're trying to solve now. Absolutely. That 200-hour training, it's a reasonable benchmark. It's, it's a really accessible um, place to get started from. So yeah. if your problem is not enough teachers, it's actually a pretty good solution. Yes. And then we're talking about the problems that we were facing in the mid-90s. Now, you know, uh, a quarter of a century later, <laughs> um, and, and the Alliance recognized this, this the, the industry is a valid, it's a, it is an actual industry now, and it's a different conversation altogether. Um, and uh, I don't think you can, uh, if you're the Alliance, I don't think you can come out and say something like, okay, all of you 200 RYTs are now not RYTs, you are RYIs. You can't retroactively change the rules or the designation, but you can create something new going forward that recognizes that distinction and create a different class of um, uh, registration or certification or whatever you want to call it. It does seem like they have been trying to do that. You know, first they introduced the E-R-Y-T. Like, it seems like they've been trying to step stone into it. But I think the biggest challenge is that there isn't enough education beforehand that the RYT is not the finishing spot. Well, sure. And that's, that's the clarity that would have resulted from distinguishing instructor from teacher right from the get-go. And it's education on, on behalf uh, of everyone the public at large who will be attending classes, uh, the people who are potential enrollees in the training programs, and most especially the people leading the training programs. It would have brought an enormous amount of clarity to the whole process up and down the line for everyone involved and would have fulfilled one of the fundamental proper missions of the Alliance, which is education of the, of the public as well as members of the industry. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's been a big topic on my mind. And the way that I've been thinking about it is it's a little bit misleading. It's not quite accurate, but yoga has a PR problem. With a PR problem? With, with the general public. The general public thinks that they know what yoga is. They're very sure that they know what yoga is, and they're almost always wrong. They think about twisting your body into a pretzel. So the... I, it had not occurred to me at all until you just said that, that this is part of where Yoga Alliance actually fell down on the job. If that's part of their mission, mm. is educating the general public, they did a poor job of it. And, and those of us who've been in the industry for a long period of time and have dedicated ourselves to it are fighting against this tidal wave of misinformation in the general public about what it is that we actually do. I would say that there's certainly an argument <clears throat> for that perspective, but again, if we open the lens up a little bit and look at the broader context of how yoga sits in the public consciousness, I think there's a place for all of it. 
including what you're referring to as this misconception that yoga is just about asana or that asana is just about being twisty and bendy, which it's not, you know. Um, you know, I often, I often refer to this as the, the, the unbridled pursuit of unlimited flexibility misconception, that that's what asana is about and that yoga is about asana. Um, and, you know, even contortion practice isn't that. Mm -hmm. you know? mm. I've worked with contortionists and they need strength to be able to walk away from what they're doing. Right. But let's think of it as a pie, like the yoga pie, all of it, including anything that gets the word yoga attached to it. Goat yoga, beer yoga, rage yoga, hot nude yoga, you know, all that stuff. The stuff you see in your newsfeed every day, <laughs> you know. Um, that's part of the yoga industry, and that is, to me, not a problem, really, because we are fundamentally educators, you know, those of us that see it that way. And, you know, we nourish ourselves on what is, admittedly, an extremely thin slice of that pie, you know. Now, our thin slice is not likely to get that much bigger as a percentage of the overall pie. And yet that thin slice can become much more nourishing to us as the pie gets bigger and bigger. Maybe what it takes to get somebody on a mat for the first time is the prospect of having their dog with them or having a goat climb on them, mm -hmm. getting buzzed on beer or weed or, or cursing or listening to, you know, um, hard rock music or, you know, whatever, whatever permutations someone's going to come up with, right? And it, for some people, that's what it's going to take to get them on the mat. So I'm not thinking about the teachers who are coming up with these things that are exploiting the good name of yoga and turning it into something that it really isn't or shouldn't be. I'm thinking of the students who, for whatever reason, end up on a mat with a person leading a class in which for the first time, the student is going to be asked to maybe bring their mind and their body and their breath together in a way that they've never done before. That's what's magic. That's what's going to transform people's lives, regardless of what initially brought them into class. And that's what's going to allow a certain, admittedly, small percentage of these people in those classes to find their way into my thin slice of the pie. So I don't see it as a problem. I don't think we're damaging the good name of yoga. I, no, I'm 100% on the same page with you. I'm actually looking at it from the opposite perspective, where I work with a lot of people who really want to share yoga with people who they know could benefit, but they actually don't see themselves attending those pretzely classes. Uh -huh. So that's the type of people that I, a lot of the people that I work with, and their challenge is telling them, no, it's actually okay. You do belong in a yoga class, even if you can't touch your toes already. It's okay. Yoga isn't just about getting more flexible. I promise you, there's so much more to it than that. You know, people who think of themselves as more standard American and yoga is too weird. Okay. Well, to continue to use the language of business, because you brought that up in the beginning, you are dealing with people who find themselves servicing a niche market. But the fact that there even exists 
a market overall, let alone a niche market, is due to all this other stuff, right? So it's all part of it. And, and we, again, we find our slice of the pie. And, and yes, I think the, the Alliance can do a much better job of education mm-hmm. uh, about all of this. But it's not an either or thing. It's not like you, in order to be true to the, what we consider to be the authentic spirit and the all-inclusive spirit of yoga with a capital Y, we have to denounce or denigrate the stuff that we don't, you know, get in, involve ourselves in or anything. It, and, and so the Alliance, you know, in order to have the resources to do the really important work that they need to do, has to have an open door policy for all of it. I, I agree with you. I, I don't, um, I try to pay more attention to what I do want. And if there's somebody doing something out there that I'm not interested in, I assume that they have good reasons for being interested in it. Yes, the 33rd Sutra of the first chapter uh, works for that one, the, the, the Maitri Karuna idea. You know, if I can be, if I can be, you know, not disturbed by, by what I consider to be the um, stupidity of other people, uh, I can be a very happy person. Nesigachar was often referring to that particular sutra, you know, like, because, you know, and even in ways you wouldn't expect, because like, when he would get a question, like, how can you, how can you tell that somebody has achieved some of these higher states of yoga? And it's like, well, first of all, if they're talking about having achieved them, they probably haven't. But look at how they're living their lives and look at their attitudes towards people in general. People are doing praiseworthy things and not praiseworthy things. You know, and that's where he would refer to that sutra, right? Um, and, and that's how you can tell they've got some, some level of equanimity in their minds because they're not constantly raging against all the the, the shit in the world that they don't like, you know? Uh, and they can be pleased with the praiseworthy and undisturbed by the unpraiseworthy. It's, uh, it's a very valuable practice, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a, li- a life's work. Well, yes, yes, because life is a moving target and you never quite zero in on it. Or when you think you have, then the target moves. <laughs> yep, that's, um, that's a that's a topic that comes up a lot in my work with yoga teachers. I, you know, I do teach in teacher trainings and then I mentor and coach yoga teachers. And there tends to be this expectation that there's a point, right? That you achieve some level of equanimity that is stable. <laughs> and uh, I mean, in my experience, I, I'm not expecting that. I'm. Well, I wouldn't expect it if I you know, got on a bicycle, let alone tried to live a life, you know? Riding a bike is a series of narrowly avoided falls. You just, you know, you just do it so quickly that it seems like you're moving smoothly. <laughs> mm-hmm. It actually isn't just standing and walking around the same thing. It, yeah, well, walking has been described as a series of narrowly avoided falls as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, this is a good description of life. Um, someone asked the Dalai Lama if he ever gets knocked off of balance, you know, and he said all, all the time, like, Every day, I just get back on balance so quickly, no one ever notices. <laughs> so it's no different in kind from what we're struggling with. It's just the recovery time gets a little shorter. Well, some of us, when we first come to yoga, realize that, that you know, we have like a decades-long recovery time from certain things. And, you know, it, that can certainly get shorter. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. 
So I'd love to move into what your hopes are for the future. In, in terms of like industry-wide or the, 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 the alliances, uh, reevaluation of their standards or? Wherever you want to go. Wherever, well, that's a pretty. It could be both. I mean, okay, let's, let's say either or both. What I hope for is something that I've been taking a very strong and consistent stand for from the beginning is that we remain free as an industry to uh, find our students, to find our markets without interference from third parties, uh, especially the government. <clears throat> and, 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 and that's an aspect, you know, people, you know, for whatever reasons, and many of them are justified or have been justified over the years, who criticize an organization like the Alliance, don't recognize some of the really essential things that that they've been doing in the last bunch of years. The advocacy work that they're now fully able to do since they reorganized their nonprofit status into two distinct organizations, really, um, uh, that keeps the field of yoga teacher training free from regulation as vocational training has been absolutely essential. There, is many, there are many states, as you're probably aware, that have tried to step in and regulate yoga teacher training programs the same way they would regulate bartending school and hairdressing academies and whatever as post-secondary or vocational training which would impose huge burdens uh, on uh, the programs, especially the smaller ones. Um, and more than that, I mean, you know, you can certainly make um, pragmatic arguments against how it's not practical, but on a, on a more fundamental level, it's not right. You know, it's wrong. Um, uh, that kind of regulation is wrong. And the Alliance has very successfully been able to step in on a state-by-state -state basis, I call it legislative whack-a-mole, actually, um, to whatever state is trying to do this and uh, has managed to you know, shut it down. And that's important. Is the Yoga Alliance the best tool for yoga teachers to remain unregulated? Presently, sure, because they, they have the uh, the, the structure for it in their nonprofit status. They have the resources. You know, in a way, the registry is what is, is the financial engine that provides them with the resources to do things like that and also to have the foundation where they're giving away scholarships or, or whatever, or whatever other, you know, uh, giving back to the community that, um, that they decide to do. Um, my issue with the Alliance over the years has been, uh, and particularly in this latest phase uh, of the public opinion poll they were taking and the, the industry elders that have been consulted on the uh, standards review is, um, I have not yet heard it clearly stated what principles are being employed in evaluating all of this information they've been taking in. And that remains to be seen uh, until they release their final position paper uh, in the very near future on the revisions to 
things like scope of practice and the certification standards and like all the other topics that were being addressed by these uh, focus groups, you know, because um, you cannot set policy with public opinion polls, you know, you can't run a country on a pure democracy either. You see, and this is, this is where I think people have to understand the real meanings of words. You know, people complain, oh, you know, the, the Alliance board hasn't been uh, elected democratically or this or that. It's like democracy is a method of selecting something. It's not a system of government. You know, there are democratically elected Islamic dictatorships in the world, right? You can have, yeah, you can give, uh, you know, a society the right to, to vote away their rights, you know, unless you have a constitutional republic that keeps that from happening. That's what we tried to set up in the United States 200 years ago, you know, and it's been under assault, as you may have noticed, but <clears throat> democracy is not the be all and end all of systems. It's a method for choosing leadership. But however you choose leaders, they should never have the right to legislate away your fundamental rights. <clears throat> now to bring it, down to the smaller issue of the alliance, you know, where's the constitution? Where, where is the bill of rights? Where are the fundamental principles that are defensible on a philosophic, ethical level that allows them to make decisions based on, you know, all the information they're taking and how do you judge how to use that information, you know? And, and that, to me, is something that has not been clearly stated, you know. And look, whether I agree with the principles they come up with or not, at least if I know what they are, I can decide what relationship I want to have to an organization like that. The same is true of IAYT, by the way, who's dealing with a much tougher field. Mm -hmm. Because you're, you're there in things that are verging on therapeutic and medical practice in which claims are being made you know, that the government has a deep interest in regulating right. and assessing and controlling. And for an organization like IAYT to not have a clear policy on where they stand in terms of government regulation is unconscionable. If I were considering becoming a member of IAYT, I would want to know where they stand on that. And I don't think anyone does. So, yeah, it's, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why the Alliance got out of the business of seeming to endorse therapeutic claims being made by people in their registry or the people who were trained in programs in their registry that a 200 or 500 whatever Alliance registered program was capable of producing a yoga therapist. They were right to have that, but the implementation of the, implementation of the policy was a clusterfuck. It was terrible, right? But that, the, the policy was correct. Yeah, and that might have um, jeopardized their work for the deregulate, you know, for fighting the regulation. Yes, in, in it would have totally jeopardized whatever argument they're making with the government that, that they should not regulate these training programs. So they, they had to, as, as a matter of principle, uh, separate out the, the therapeutic conversation and basically handed that big steaming load of problem over to IAYT, right? 
I'm surprised though that the Yoga Alliance with all of the resources and effort that they have put into this standards update that they haven't created a document of principles. And especially if they have you and I'm sure other people on the team asking for it. Well, that remains to be seen. They have not released their position paper yet. Maybe we'll do a part two after I've had a chance to hear what they've come up with and give you the scoop on that. So we'll see. Um, but you see, I think I've, I run into this all the time when I'm teaching workshops or just having conversations with people individually or in groups. There is a lack of ability I have found for people to think in principles, you know, to, to understand the importance of thinking in principles, to, to grasp a fundamental principle and then um, figure out what the concrete application of any given circumstance you run into would be based on that principle. Mm -hmm. um, it happens all the time when I'm teaching a workshop. I'll cover something I consider to be a principle and, and try to explain it as clearly as I can. Can you give me an example? Um, okay, well, that uh, here's a principle as it relates to what we do. Um, asanas don't have alignment. They can't have alignment because they don't exist, apart from the person doing them. A person can have alignment. So the way I say it is asanas don't have alignment, people have alignment. Um, and so the conversation about alignment has to be happening within an individual and their experience of what it's like to be in a particular shape that we would call an asana. You know, and I try and get that across as clear as I can and give examples and give people experiential um, sorts of uh, uh, practices to clarify that. And as much as I can try to do that with a room full of people, I will inevitably get questions down the road that, you know, are okay, but what's the alignment for down dog or, the, you know, where you're now generalizing away from the individual with the nature of the question. And I always end up saying, who's down dog? Right. And they're like, oh, that was that principle, wasn't it? And I'm like, yeah. And then five minutes later, I'll get another question about another asana, you know, which generalizes away from the individual and we just want to, people want to know a formula. They want to know an answer. They want to know the indications, the contraindications of this or that asana. It's a very reductionistic, um, intrinsic way of thinking about um, something like asana practice. It's a, way, it's a way you would maybe tell an instructor to talk about what they're doing just to give them a starting point as a teacher and give the, a beginning student perhaps a starting point of thinking of what they're doing. But even, even in the context of an instructor training, the seed has to be planted of, look, this is just a starting point for getting people through a practice, giving you something to say that's motivating and um, you know, structures the, the practice or the technique in a way so that they can actually follow it. But the more you look into it, the more that's going to break down. The more you pay attention to what everyone in that room is doing with your cues, the more you're going to notice how different they are, you know? So I think even, you know, the argument that, that 
people need something to hang their hat on, so to speak, is, is valid, but you still have to inject, even at the beginning stages of someone's teaching or teacher training, the idea that there has to be an inquiry. There has to be some inquiry. You know, the way I talk about it is like there's, there's the stira and the sukha of, of teaching. You know, the stira, the boundary, you know, element of it is technique. You know, and the reason I call it the boundary element is that like, well, the reason what makes a technique a technique is that you can get it wrong. You can screw it up. You can do it wrong. You can be not doing the thing, you know, and that's certainly true of techniques. If they, if they didn't have a right or wrong term, they, they wouldn't be techniques, right? right? But then the other pole, the, the sukha, the space, the openness of the conversation has to do with inquiry. Um, and inquiry the very nature of inquiries, you can't get it wrong. There's no way to get an inquiry wrong. The closest you can come to getting it wrong, at least in your mind, is I don't know what the hell's going on in this inquiry. But that in itself is an insight. You know, you recognize that you're confused. According to my teacher, he'd call that a state of clarity. Right. So the way I would say it is technique without inquiry becomes dogma. But inquiry without technique becomes chaos. It becomes anarchy, right? So you, 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 you have to find where in that spectrum, where in that balance between technique and inquiry, you're going to land as an instructor or a teacher or whatever. And for a beginning instructor, it's much more on the side of technique. As you get more experienced and as you find your students or as they find you, the inquiry element gets brought more and more in. But you can never abandon technique any more than you can ever abandon inquiry. There, there always has to be there. And, and you know, that conversation being part of a 200-hour training program, I think, is important. As somebody who teaches at 200-hour training programs, my challenge is, you know, my interest is now more in the inquiry. <laughs> and I have to kind of force myself to be more technique-oriented in that context. Because otherwise, people are just out to sea. They don't know kind of where they're landing in something. You know, and you can look at, te- you know, there, there's, there's senior teachers out there and you can, when, when you have that lens to use, to look at what they're doing, you can see where they've landed in the conversation, right? Like you take an Eric Schiffman, right? Who basically he'll put on some music and say, have at it. You know, it's like, and that's awesome. You got to respect that. <laughs> right? And that's that, to have the balls literally to do that with a room full of people who paid you to turn on the music and say, have at it, practice now for a while. That takes some chutzpah. But the context of that is that you as a teacher and the students have some background in technique. They have, they have gotten to the point where they can do that without feeling like they're just being, you know, shoved into the deep end without a floaty. Yeah. Right? Um, and the other end of that spectrum, you can see people who are just so... Like this is, I'm not going to mention names here. This is the way it's done. You're being asked to micromanage, you know, which way your skin is going or your kneecap or your left toenail or whatever. And there's this very sort of intrinsic uh, view of what the goal is that you're uh, trying to accomplish in this pose and that you are able to accomplish that goal by micromanaging all of your bits into the proper arrangement. And again, I'm not gonna mention names.
No need to. And there's a place for them. There's a place for that yoga. The, the entire conversation about alignment came out of that perspective. Now, whether you want to buy into it or not is a question of how much inquiry you're actually willing to do around those kinds of questions, right? So, and there's a place for, for, for all of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so long as we are able to educate people that this is the conversation and it's not right and wrong, it's like, where do you land and in what context is it appropriate to teach more, you know, inquiry-based or more technique-based practice? So, yeah, but that's, you know, to, just to go back to the, 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 original, the original point uh, about the alliance, the real role I feel that they have been fulfilling well is protecting the industry from regulators. Mm -hmm. What they haven't been so good at is they have a, what I consider to be a correct policy, but do they know what makes it correct? Mm. And you can't just offer a pragmatic argument to say it's not practical. That's not enough. You cannot, pragmatism is not a, a valid way of uh, sustaining an argument for okay. or against anything. Because know? if the circumstances change, then that means your policy has to change or? Well, that's, the basis, that's the very basis of pragmatism. It's a very range of the moment way of sustaining an argument or a policy. You know, it's like, oh yeah, and that's what politicians do. You know, they're all pragmatists in one sense or another which is another way of saying they're unprincipled. You know, Yogi Berra famously said that in theory, theory and practice are the same, but in practice, they're not. Chew on that one for a yeah, while. That's a deep one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that knowing what your principles are and checking in with them regularly is really important for everyone, but especially for yoga teachers, and especially for yoga teachers who want to bring something more than, something deeper than a physical practice to their classes, mm. yeah. you need to know what you stand for. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And I've been making this argument right from the beginning. For example, if you take the very first moral precept of ahimsa, mm. you know, the yamas are, are restraints on your behavior. They're things you don't do. Ah, himsa, don't harm, you know, ah, steam, don't steal, stuff like that, right? So, but ahimsa being a fundamental principle, uh, if you bring it into this conversation uh, of, say, what the yoga alliance's principles may be, is like, what are we trying not to harm here? Is it students? Is it teachers? Is it the general public? Is the industry as a whole? Um, I would say that my understanding of that, in order to understand that, you have to understand something my teacher was always saying about yoga. Desikachar was always saying that yoga is relationship. Mm. Um, relationship fundamentally between teacher and student. So if that relationship between teacher and student is the fundamental vehicle for the transmission of what we call yoga, because yoga means to, to join in a certain sense, right? And there's a joining that happens between teacher and student in a very direct way. The Yoga Alliance, their ahimsa would have to be, we cannot um, create policies that harm 
have the potential for harming the student-teacher relationship. That is what would make their policy against regulation correct. That is what would say that is why this is a correct policy, because by allowing the government to dictate what happens in a teacher training program, or who can teach it, or what kind of space it needs to be in, or how much insurance you have to carry, or how much of a bond you have to post, or what sort of CFO you need to have, all of that stuff, that is introducing interference into this voluntary, um, empowered relationship between teacher and student, you know? Um, so that's the like the prime directive, I feel. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use my Star Trek nerd here to talk about the prime directive, but uh, which is a non-interference directive, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Right, see, you know Star Trek. Um, of course. I can tell. Um, can recognize a nerd. <laughs> well, hey, I'm an old nerd, which means I watched the original series when it wasn't reruns. That's how old of a Star Trek nerd I am. But the, the point is non-interference, right? And so, number one, the Alliance has been rightly emphasizing the fact that they are a voluntary registry. No one's forcing anyone to sign up with the Alliance. I'm not registered with the Alliance. I never have been, never will be. But if things start happening out there in the marketplace that starts to use the Alliance's standards to create a non-voluntary sort of situation, for example, some states actually tried to adopt legislation that would have made Alliance registry mandatory for anyone to teach yoga in that state, they need to fight that as well. So that hasn't happened. They fought that and they won, yeah. So they fought that. Well, that's yeah. a good sign for their principles. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, but the question is, where do those principles live? Do they live in the individual attitudes of the uh, executive board or the administrators the board hires? Or do they live in some sort of thing like a constitution of the alliance, which isn't dependent on the opinions or views or, or whims, really, of anyone serving in the alliance, right? So there have been principled people who have done this work for and with the alliance over the years. Um, and they come and go, though. See, the, 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 do, do, the, do the principles survive the, the personalities is, I think, an important conversation. And it's one that we are hopefully going to continue. The conversation? Yes. Well, can we reveal that we're going to have a follow-up to this conversation? I think that's a fantastic idea, and we have taken steps to make sure that happens. Uh, and just to be clear, uh, at the, the next time we talk, I will have more information. Um, we'll have more to talk about because we'll we'll I'll, we'll we'll know at that point whether the alliance has uh, screwed it up or not. <laughs> it's kind of an exciting time. I'm really interested to see where they're going to go from here because. I have not seen any big moves from them in so very long. Well, they're dealing with an enormous task, you know, and I, I've been having conversations with folks behind the scenes and have a sense of the enormity of what they're dealing with. And the enormity of the importance of what they're dealing with is not lost on them. And there are some, some good people, some smart people, some principled people, in my view, 
who are involved in this process. Uh, and there are also a lot of other points of view and pressures imposing themselves into the conversation now where there are agendas trying to pull the conversation in that in one direction or another you know and this is what this is what i basically i sat down with the leadership a while back some of whom is no longer there because uh, it included lipsius but what i said was look you've done this survey you've gotten all this information right and i'll tell you exactly I, I haven't seen the i haven't seen the results of that point of the survey but i'll tell you exactly what's going to happen there's gonna be a bell curve of responses you know and on one end is going to be you know fuck you alliance go off and die i hate you you don't need to exist at all you know boycott whatever there's those people we know who they are on the other end of the spectrum however is like we want you to be the yoga police we want you to enforce this top-down, you know, um, policing of your standard to prevent this horrible abuse and whatever it is we see that's going on in the yoga world that's bad. You need to stop it. You need to be the yoga police, right? Now, those are extremist views, both of them. You know, we want you to go away and not exist, and we want you to control everything from the top down like the yoga police. The bell curve of responses in the middle, of course, is going to have none of those extreme views, but will be shaded by, you know, the extremes. Um, my question to the leadership at that point is, okay, what do you do then with these survey results? Do you base your policy on the middle of the bell curve? I hope not. I hope not. Is, is your, are you taking a pragmatist view of let's, let's piss off the fewest people possible? That's always wrong. Do we decide which extreme to piss off in favor of one or the other? No. You have to have principles. You have to have a solid base of ethical principles that allow you to judge what you're going to do or not do. You know, if, if I'll tell you how the alliance will screw this up, they can get into the business of certifying teachers. Is that on the table? Of course. Has been. Sure because those are some strong voices from outside the alliance and maybe within the alliance. It's like, we have to issue our, in other words, we have to issue, issue some kind of certificate that will in some way make the alliance responsible for the behavior of people who are holding the certificate, which gives us the right to withdraw that sanction should they misbehave or not adhere to this code of ethics we've come up with. And I think that would be a huge, huge mistake. And people may say it is just see it as just a little mistake, but you know, that's grabbing the top end of a very slippery rope. That would be a mistake, in my view. So we'll see. And there are probably in that survey, there are probably some questions that don't have quite that same big bell curve. Did you do the survey? Did you answer yeah, the survey? Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, but I'm thinking about the question of like, is 200 hours enough? Do we need higher standards? Is it enough for what? It's a, it's a, that's a question begging for a context. <laughs> for creating an instructor? Yes. A teacher? No. How you ask these questions has a lot to do with the value of the, the, of the information you get from the answers, you know. Right. <laughs> I have not thought about this question in those exact terms. 
prior to this conversation today. So that's really interesting. I mean, I have thought of instructor versus teacher, but I hadn't thought about going back in time and could we have set different expectations about what these trainings were yeah. and how, how do we do that now in the future? Yeah. Yeah. That I hadn't thought of. So. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking about this stuff for 30 years. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really curious to see what their answer is going to be. So am I, I am very curious and it's kind of a watershed moment, I think for our industry. And I don't, I don't feel bad using the term industry, you know, because I work, I, I work in the industry. I, 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 I pay my rent and take care of my family with, you know, the um, uh, money I make working in this industry. And I, I'm happy that it exists because I have certainly put in my time sitting in empty or near empty rooms as a teacher, you know, hoping for people to come in the door or hoping no one would come in the door so I can just go home. You know, there's that like, it's like, damn, the worst thing would be for one person to walk in right now. And I end up giving like, you know, a $15 private lesson for an hour and a half. Um, I'd rather just go home. Um, so I've been there, you know, when there wasn't enough of an industry overall to sustain what I was trying to do financially. Um, so, you know, in the 40 years I've been doing this, I, I've, I've seen this incredible change and you know one other thing i think we talked about the difference between the conversation uh in 1995 compared to now back then you know what was not happening so much and it goes along with sort of what we were discussing in terms of the gyms getting involved and so on the yoga teacher in most instances now maybe i don't know if it's most but certainly many is not as empowered to have a say in how they teach as they used to be. You know, you're seen a lot of times as a service provider. Um, and it's the, because we talk about the power imbalance between the teacher and the student in a lot of these conversations about, you know, the abuses that happen. Okay. But in many situations, the, the teacher doesn't have that much power because it's the customer that's always right. It's the student that's always right because they can complain to the person at the front desk about some of their expectations not getting met or something that happened in the classroom that they didn't like because they paid their membership, they paid their monthly card, they, they have an expectation, they wanna go in and get their yoga on, you know, and this teacher is doing way too much inquiry for my taste, management's gonna hear about that. Well, then there's the power imbalance between the studio and the teachers, depending on their mm -hmm. relationship, their contract and the different priorities that they may have. Absolutely. So I can imagine a lot of teachers who are in that exact situation, hearing all of this discussion uh, on, on the, you know, abuse side of things about how much power these teachers have over their students thinking like, geez, I wish I can get some of that power, you know, not the power to abuse someone, obviously, but you know, that's why I think, I think the word power is not the best word to use in these conversations. I think responsibility is mm. a better There's an asymmetry of responsibility in a classroom. For sure. Um, and the teacher rightly has more right. than the student. Doesn't mean the student has zero, but it doesn't mean the teacher, it doesn't mean the teacher has zero either in terms of having a say in what they do. They're not just human tape recorders that someone hits play and the class comes out. I think the Alliance has a role to play in 
supporting some more nuanced conversations around these kinds of issues as well, right? So um, it is interesting. It's a very interesting time to be part of the yoga industry. It is. Yeah. I love it. I wouldn't, can't imagine doing anything else at this point, but um, I'm looking forward to the next installment of our conversation. <laughs> So am I. So you're you're full time. You're all in, right? You don't have you don't have a plan B at this point. I don't have a plan B. So at this point, your plan B is plan A. Better fucking work. <laughs> it's working. Yes, it is. It's working, and you want to be free to make it work on your terms, without anyone imposing their agenda on what you can and cannot do. Well, that's the beauty of the medium of the podcast. That's exactly why it's exploding in popularity right now is I'm 100% empowered to put whatever I want on this medium. Which means you're not going to bleep out my curses? Um, I didn't even notice you cursing, did you? I threw a few F-bombs in there. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll listen through <laughs> and um, I'll decide based on context. We had one podcast where, where the... Uh, person felt the need for a trigger warning um, on, you know, the description of the podcast and then a spoken one in the body of the podcast. So I didn't think anything that you said today, not that I've ever used one. Unless having your presuppositions challenged needs to have a trigger warning. Oh, I like having my presuppositions challenged. Good. Good. I, there's, it's not that many people that do it, really. <laughs> <laughs> And we should seek them out, shouldn't we? Because that's how we grow. Yeah, 100%. One final thing that I will say, and this remains to be seen if it gets baked into the alliances things. What you just said is so important of, of seeking people out from whom we can get uh, these challenges. Yeah. That's kind of a mentorship conversation, isn't it? Yeah. And have, see, because the idea of imposing from the top down an ethical code or standards of conduct or even, a, um, you know, a scope of practice uh, isn't going to work. The alliance can't be that or do that, really. Um, but on a, a more flat community level, fostering transparency, communication and mentorship and baking that into the 200 and 500 hour conversation really, really important. Because look, if I do something in the classroom that a teacher, that, that a student doesn't like, yeah, okay, uh, to grow as a teacher, I'm going to need to get that feedback, but I'm not. They're going to leave and never come back. I'm going to get praise. People are very happy to share their praise with me. They're not so happy to share critical feedback because it's harder. It's a harder conversation. We know that. Where can that information go and how can it get back to me? If I have a mentor who is known, to be my mentor. Maybe that person in my class, if they're not comfortable talking to me, can talk to my mentor. My mentor can talk to me. But that again, that's yoga is relationship. Mm -hmm. Fostering relationship is how we can get ourselves out of some of these difficult situations in which we find ourselves, where um, we are in the very dangerous psychological and educational situation of hearing far more praise for what we do than critical feedback. Yeah. We need to do something to balance that out as, as an industry and bake that into the conversation. And so that's something the Alliance can do as well. Also, sometimes we'll have a situation that comes up that we are not sure about our role in it. 
you know, maybe we do get feedback because some people are also happy to give you negative feedback or whatever, critical feedback. So there are, there are certain times when you have to ask yourself, is this valid feedback? How much of this feedback is valid? <laughs> and how important is it at that point to have somebody with more experience mm-hmm. who understands you, who understands your context, your, right. your values to yes. reflect back to you? You know what? That's them. Or yeah, well, to some degree, yes, that's valid. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and I, I, I'm very fortunate I have someone like that. I have my, my partner, Lydia, uh, who reads the survey feedback before it gets to me. Yeah. Because <laughs> she can filter that because she knows me. Oh. And she was there in the room when I was teaching. Yeah. And she'll say, you know, I think this is more about this person's issue. You just rub them the wrong way. They don't like your personality, whatever. And sometimes she'll say, you know what, I agree with them. And that's a gut check. Mm-hmm. That's a real gut check. I mean, literally, I feel it in my gut. It's like, oh, maybe I wasn't as brilliant as I thought I was. But that's, I, I, that's, that's growing. That's how I'm growing as a teacher and as a human being. And we, we, to develop a delivery system for that kind of feedback is probably the single most important thing we can do as an industry to make ourselves safer mm-hmm. and better at what we do in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, I think we're, we're, we think we're over time here. I think we're a little bit over time, but and it's only part one. I know. Well, thank you again, Leslie. I'm going to look forward to part two, which we will record shortly after you get a big download from the yoga Alliance. Oh, I'll be taking notes and taking names. Awesome. <laughs> okay. I hope that conversation whet your appetite for part two, which is going to happen right after the Yoga Alliance shares their updated standards with their advisory board, which Leslie is on. Currently, Leslie's operating under an NDA, so he can only disclose his personal opinions. However, we're going to wait to release the second episode until the same day that the Yoga Alliance goes public with their new standards so that he can discuss everything freely on part two. That means we do know when we're planning to record the next part, but we don't know when it's going to be released. Depending on where I'm at in my schedule, it might end up actually being a bonus episode. So make sure that you're subscribed on whatever app you're listening on. And if you're listening on the web, you might want to go to a podcast app such as iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify to subscribe so that you have access to that episode as soon as it's released. I am recording this outro on Monday, March 25th, and it's going to be released on Thursday, the 28th, which happens to be the day after my birthday. If you feel like helping me celebrate, I would love a review of the podcast because reading those really makes my day. I know that not all podcast players offer reviews, but there are lots of different ways that you can leave one, even if you are listening on the web, for example. If you listen on iTunes, I would love that you leave a review there because that does help other people find me. But if you listen somewhere else, you could go on Facebook and leave a review on my page. You can just type in yoga teacher resource and it should come up. Or if you're not even on Facebook, you don't do any social media, you can shoot me an email at helloyogateacher at gmail.com 
and let me know what you think about the podcast. Let me know what you like about it, what you think I could be doing better, and what topics you'd like to see me cover. A few days ago, a listener named Laura left the following review in the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group. By the way, you know she caught my attention by flattering me about the way my voice sounds. Listening to yourself talk is the hardest part, I think, about having a podcast. So comments like these really help me relax and be more comfortable with that part of it. Okay, Laura says, I was randomly looking for a good yoga podcast that would help me with my 200-hour training. And I was so happy to find you, Mado. Here she has a little heart emoji. First of all, your voice is so relaxing, and listening to you is absolute bliss. What you talk about in every episode is so interesting, too. I feel more in love with yoga now. There's so much more to give to students than just asana poses. It's care, love, compassion, education, body awareness, insights about their body, anatomy and how it moves and how to self-care with breathing and meditation. All things I cannot wait to learn myself. I know I will teach acro yoga when I finish my training and will also add empathy, teamwork, and loads of laughing to all of the above. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Laura, for that incredibly, incredibly sweet review. And thank you, dear listener, for staying all the way till the very end, even through the listener spotlight. If you leave a review this week, I might include yours in a future episode. And whether I read it aloud or not, I do really, really appreciate each one of you who reaches out. I hope that you will tune in again next week for another episode. And until then, remember to take time for your personal practice. Mm -hmm.